What I ultimately want to do with this Bitcoin discourse is try and bring as many people in as possible and to talk about it in a way that ceases to alienate particular ideological camps who, for whatever reasons, have been trained quite effectively to be hostile to a technology that could actually empower them. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are well into the football season. And you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up is Compass Mining. And Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs, and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know what? I've been mining for over three months with them now. I've mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think, about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again, because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined training view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February. So keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Balaji, how are you? Good. Good to see you again, man. And Glenn, welcome to the show. It's uh, somebody I've wanted to talk to for quite some time. Uh, It's nice to see you you, getting a lot of Bitcoin. 
Yeah, I'm definitely uh, been diving in a lot lately, so I'm excited to do this. Thanks for asking. Well, look, this is going to be an interesting conversation because uh, one of the things I've been struggling as a podcaster with is trying to find the truth at the moment. Uh, can't trust mainstream media. Not sure uh, how much fact-checking goes on with the independents who've been growing. Uh, there's a handful of people I do trust. Glenn, you're one of them. Uh, Matthew Taibbi I trust, and there's a few others. But I'm really struggling in the whole area of truth-finding. And I know as a journalist, Glenn, this is something you've been discussing quite a lot. But also, it's really interesting to bring Balaji in on this because he's looking at technical solutions to this. So I think we're going to get into some interesting topics. Uh, Balaji, I'll go with you first because you've been really diving into this on the technology front. and You've always been somebody who's, who, who's been drawn to like using technology to solve problems. Like how are you, how are you going with this? Sure. So short version is I think that we need to replace this sort of centralized corporate or government truth with decentralized cryptographic truth. And I know that's a mouthful, um, but the very, very brief version, and then let's go through all the problems with media, which I think, um, you know, Glenn has is that, you know, with, with Bitcoin, uh, we were able to allow an Israeli and a Palestinian or a Chinese and a Japanese person or a Democrat and Republican to all agree on the state of the Bitcoin blockchain, regardless of your political views or your geography, people agree on how much Bitcoin someone has globally. And that's this huge triumph because, you know, a trillion dollars, forget, you know, like a, a million dollars, that's the kind of thing that people will fight over and disagree on. And now there's no dispute on who owns what BTC. And so that's actually like this decentralized truth. And the thing is that once you develop consensus algorithms that can get people to agree on like the, the like a number, like how much BTC someone has, you can actually extend them to other kinds of property. And that's a whole, you know, like Web3, crypto, whatever space, right? And then you can, the, the less obvious thing is you can extend that even further further to say, you know, what device recorded this temperature in Kansas on this date, or what hospital uploaded this medical record at this time, or was the price of this house, or what crime was reported. And all these feeds of data, they actually are there right now. They're in these disparate silos. I think you can put them together in something I think of as the ledger of record, like a global feed of cryptographically timestamped history, like undeletable history. And then everything becomes commentary on top of that. That's like this feed of all of these crypto oracles. And then all of us are basically advocates on top of that feed. And now, of course, somebody could put something on chain that's not actually true, but the metadata around it, the timestamp of when it happened and you know the, the hash of what was there and the digital signature of who uploaded it, that is something that's very hard to monkey with. And as you add more proof of X techniques, you can establish more and more. So I know I just dived into the deep end, but that is, I think, where we ultimately, that, that's where we ultimately want to go, okay? Which is basically a more robust feed of truth rather than the assertions of some corporation or government, something where anybody can dig in and diligence the raw data as as low as they want to go. And we're already kind of moving towards this. Like a lot of media is effectively just commentary on Twitter, right? Um, it's, it's amazing how many, you know, articles are all the tweets that are fit to reprint, right? Um, and that's like a feed of data. And I think you can go much further with that to a feed of effectively on-chain assertions. And then, you know, everybody becomes a reporter. Everybody becomes a journalist. Every device, every device becomes a reporter. So that's where I think we want to go. Um, and I know that's a technical solution, but there's tons of problems. So why don't we talk about the problems? Glenn, you know, I'm sure you have, a, you have a take on that. I think the trajectory of Bitcoin in terms of how it emerged in not just the discourse, but in the world and the perception it created is been has been somewhat of a problem for drawing more people into the discussion for a long time. The 
perception, if not the reality, was that it was basically a libertarian currency and that the interest in it would be due to either a desire to invest in some new invest in investment interest or just as a different way of organizing the world economy and currency. And that excluded a lot of people for a lot of reasons, in part because it was attached to this libertarian ideology, which people on both the left and the right are sometimes alienated by. It also seemed kind of elusive in terms of grasping the macroeconomic implications. Not very many people, I think, are well steeped in even the political implications, let alone the economic ones of how currency is organized. And I think the more cultural and political potential of Bitcoin as a technology, the kind of thing that Balaji just highlighted, is something people only recently are thinking about. And I know for me, you know, if it were just kind of a investment vehicle or, you know, some macroeconomic instrument, I probably wouldn't be interested in it. What has interested me and is interesting me more and more is the potential to decentralize everything. Because, you know, even going back to the work I did with Edward Snowden, the ultimate mission of that cause was a free internet. It wasn't so much preservation of the right to privacy, that was obviously a subsidiary aim, but it was really an attempt to restore the idea that the internet is supposed to be this free emancipatory technology which by, necess by necessity means it's not subject to centralized corporate and state control. And then obviously the last two or three years has elevated a certain cause even further, which is the extreme and escalating, always escalating, censorship by big tech of political discourse over the internet, which is also a threat to that same cause. And so to the extent Bitcoin can be a kind of bulwark against that, it becomes very interesting, not just to me, but to a lot of people who previously weren't interested in it, precisely because the problems with corporate journalism, we could obviously spend a lot of time talking about those, they're endless. A, I think a solution that has emerged that's exciting is the emergence of this new independent media ecosystem. The problem is it is dependent upon the same centralized structure and power dynamic and technology. You look at Joe Rogan, for example, there's a vulnerability he has that he depends upon Spotify, which can zap him off the platform at any moment. Even these alternative platforms designed to be to be a kind of check against those pressures like Rumble or Substack, call in some of these other platforms that are waving this banner of free speech in a way that I find persuasive. Also, at the end of the day, are vulnerable to Amazon, Google, you know, Apple capitulating to the kind of pressure that was placed on them when they destroyed Parler at the moment that Parler was the single most downloaded app in the United States, more than Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, every other app. And so I view this growing threat to a free discourse, a free internet as the most serious threat we face and to the extent bitcoin is a technological solution which i'm not completely convinced of but i'm very interested in that's why i've devoted a lot more attention to it and why i think a lot more people are being drawn in okay, okay. so just to try and summarize what i think you're saying is that you're interested in the idea that something that like bitcoin is a flag that decentralization is possible it is possible to actually create something that is unstoppable 
that's the that's the kind of what's interested you less so than the economic side of Bitcoin. I mean, I have become more well versed in the potential to liberate the world from the dollar as this hegemonic currency and the impact that can have on mm -hmm. things that I have spent a lot of time working on, like imperialism and militarism and the like, and the connection between those two are things that are becoming more visible to me. So I'm, I don't want to say that I'm uninterested in, okay. in that side of it either. That part is interesting to me, you know, but I, I kind of see it as what I used to look at as the emergence of encryption a decade ago, you know, during the Snowden era, that was the big promise was, oh, encryption will solve these problems. The hacker community is going to develop code and tools to build a wall between the state or non-state actors and the individual to prevent surveillance and monitoring. And one of the things we reported with the Snowden technology was a lot of that had huge holes in it. And a lot of that had been breached in ways people never knew. And there's a lot of reporting since. So that's the, the, the question I still have about Bitcoin is whether that will happen here as well. But yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely my interest level. It's, it's kind of multi-pronged now. Okay. So just to, for context for you and any other listeners, uh, myself as a Bitcoiner, uh, I, I'm mainly interested in Bitcoin as a check and balance against the state rather than as something that leads to the destruction of the state. And then I know a number of listeners sometimes get upset with that because uh, they uh, believe that the state is ultimately evil and that we need to move beyond democracy. Democracy has failed. But I'm not one of those people. I'm one of those people who wants to strengthen democracy. And I believe that Bitcoin is one of the tools that can do that. Balaji. Sure. Doing, I, maybe give some reactions to that. So, yeah. you know, one thing I, I think, Glenn, is I think, the, um, I think the ideals support the economics and the economics support the ideals in the sense that, um, you know, there's a lot of things where one is, you know, something that's morally strong, but without a business model or a business model, but it doesn't have moral strength. Both of those are failed in, in different ways. But this, I think, has both. And even more importantly, it has absolute truth on its side. Um, you know, one thing I would differ probably from Peter and some of his audience on, but not all, is I think Bitcoin is a critical component of this and a critical technological enabler. But on the implementation, I don't think everything is going to run on Bitcoin itself. I think there's going to be other decentralized technologies, the whole Web3 thing and, and what have you. But that's really an implementation detail, which we can get into. But I think the philosophy upstream is, is important. And uh, and I think maybe we can we can concentrate on that. I mean, one thing... Um, I think that'd be helpful, uh, Glenn, or, you know, you, you tell me if, if you like this idea is that uh, you and I, in some ways, I, I feel have sort of converged onto a similar set of premises from different starting places where, um, you know, for example, on the order of 10 years ago, probably, and you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, I would have been much more, um, I would have thought that Google and Facebook would have maintained a degree of neutrality that they had prior to 2013. Um, when there there was a time, if you remember, that it was would be considered unthinkable for them to like censor someone on the basis of speech. Like Twitter called itself, you know, the free speech wing of the free speech party. There was a time when it, it really was kind of a censorship free internet. And um, so at that time, I was like, you know, the tech companies are relatively well intentioned and they're more on the side of freedom than the establishment. And probably you at that time looked at media companies as actually being, you know, like relatively, you know, maybe maybe somewhat biased, but not, you know, not like totally in the tank for the regime. And uh, and I think over the last 10 years, we've seen, you realize media has kind of failed. And I realized that the centralized tech companies have failed and we've come to the same place. Shoot at that. Tell me if I'm wrong or, or right on that. 
You know, certainly one of my longstanding critiques of the corporate press in the United States, go back to the Cold War, it's not anything new, is this extreme deference to the U.S. security state, the, you know, Time magazine under Henry Luce, the New York Times under the Sulzberger family. One of their main functions was doing propaganda for the CIA. There'd be some- Yeah, Cyrus Sulzberger was an asset or something like that, right? For sure. I mean, he was. I mean, you know, whether you say he's like an asset in a tactical sense or not, that was, you know, functionally- what they did, which is why they became part of the establishment. So the CIA would engineer a coup, you know, in some previously left-wing country and install a right-wing dictator. And the New York Times or Time Magazine would describe it as a revolution against a corrupt communist regime and the emergence of democracy. Or, you know, that they would always be the reverse of whatever the reality was that the CIA needed to, to sustain support for it. And then, so and then the, you go, go ahead. Yeah, well, then, then you saying, I, was, war, I, was I think when some, you would go yeah. to the war, war on terror and that became even more extreme where this like patriotic ethos emerged even more strongly in the media. So I've, this has been a longstanding critique of mine in part. It's the reason why I entered journalism when I was practicing law in 2005 was because of what this perception of this extreme subservience of the media to, to the government or really kind of a merger. But I think it just worsened exponentially in the last five years with the arrival of Donald Trump and the perception that they most of them genuinely have that Trump is this kind of unprecedented threat to all things decent and that their primary function is no longer to be objective or truth telling, but to use journalism as a weapon to undermine this political movement that obviously has radically transformed and I think exacerbated all of the pre-existing problems in media. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I actually look at it as, um, so if you if you pull the camera back further, right, uh, and you may you may agree with this may may not, but I, I do think of social media as being like American glasnost and cryptocurrency as American perestroika, in the sense that in the eighties when Gorbachev like opened up the Soviet Union, glasnost people could speak more freely, and perestroika they could have more free markets, and social media and cryptocurrency are like freer speech and freer markets, to an extent that. Just like in the USSR, the USA and the West cannot handle that degree of freedom. That is to say, that level of freedom in the Soviet Union rattled the cage a little too much in a society that had gone from having padlocks on the photocopiers just got broken apart in basically about uh, you know less than a decade or so, right? And I think that the US was able to tolerate a higher degree of free speech and free markets, like it had different, you know, cable news shows and, you know, it had, you know, obviously it had capitalism and different people trading. It had less control over speech and markets in the USSR, but it can't handle the degree to which social media and cryptocurrency have expanded things. And the cryptocurrency story is only really kind of just beginning. I think we have another 10 years of massive disruption with that, just like with social media. If you think about it, you know, when the social network movie came out, it was in 2010. And at that time, you know, yes, the Arab Spring had happened and, and so on, but that wasn't actually even mentioned in the movie, you know, in the, in the, in the 2010 movie, The Social Network. Um, and like politics was completely absent from that movie, which is actually insane from today's vantage point, going back in time and rewatching it. You're like, it's essentially the story of like a college social network where people are poking each other and so on. Nothing of the present day is kind of foreshadowed there. Even the Arab Spring stuff, because that had happened overseas and Facebook and Twitter were a part of it, it hadn't happened at home. The filmmakers didn't think of that as material, which is amazing from today's vantage point. And I think in the same way, cryptocurrency for first 10 years has been dismissed as a fad or a bubble or this or that. A lot of the same words that were used on social media 
And or, or uh, the and internet you, generally. Yeah. Remember, Paul Krugman famously said the internet's going to be like the fax machine. You know, or that's right. Have, and yeah, you know, we, he and says and the same about Bitcoin. Says the same about Bitcoin. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. The modern U.S. establishment, I think, can only react in one of two ways: either a apathy or b panic. Right? Either they're dismissive because it's unimportant and it's never going to get anywhere. Lol, tech bro, whatever. Right? Or oh my God, it's the end of democracy. Oh, you know, we're all going to die, blah, 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 right? And so the negativity is constant, but at first they're negative because it can never be important. And then they're negative because it is too important. And that just flips like that, okay? Now, what is absent from that, of course, is sort of a judiciousness about riding the lightning and aligning yourself with these waves, you know? And, you know, the way I think about it is certainly social media and crypto are like the nth power of this. But if you go back further in time, you know, there was the repeal of the fairness doctrine and there's, you know, cable news shows and so on. So you can trace it farther back, deregulation, what have you. Various forces on both right and left essentially led to a more in the sense, you know, small sense, liberal speech and market environment. And I actually think that um, the current crackdown is sort of a battle of the bulge. It's kind of too little and too late. You know, they only really started it after 3 billion people got social media and there's all these smartphones out there and encryption is out there and so on and so forth. And, you know, one of the most important things in my view is, you know, after January 2021, I was sort of holding my breath to see what was going to happen because you had like unified control of government and people were, you know, the parlor thing had just happened and so on. And I kind of thought we might be in for a wave of just mass censorship and disappearing of, you know, all kinds of accounts. Uh, all kinds of apps. And then, you know, once you chew through one group of people, then, you know, the the moderate conservatives and then the, you know, like the dissident liberals. And so like everybody just gets disappeared. Like I kind of thought that might happen. Okay. There's a possibility given the energy last January that didn't happen. And I think it's a really interesting thing that it didn't because this government, just like the previous government is like an ADD Starbucks caffeinated, you know, like sugar rush government where they have no attention span beyond what's on Twitter that day. Everything is like that now, including the state itself. And so because of that, they don't actually even have the attention span to prosecute a determined campaign of censorship of regime enemies, just like Trump didn't have the attention span to actually be the fascist that everybody said he was going to be, right? Everybody, the entire US government's all ADD, it's all actors, right? That doesn't mean that the threat of censorship isn't important. I think it is. But we're fortunate that these guys are, for the most part, chaotic evil rather than lawful evil. They're not organized enough to go and, tuk, 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 you know, blot folks out. Now, who is organized enough? The Chinese Communist Party, okay? They actually went and set up the Great Firewall. They blocked social media. They've now banned cryptocurrency, forced the Bitcoin miners out. They actually go and react to threats to their power very early on from many different points on the ideological spectrum, whether it's, you know, the strike hard campaign or versus Falun Gong or versus Xinjiang or versus the tech guys or versus, uh, you know, like Hong Kong or versus Taiwan or versus the U.S. military, basically like 360 degrees where those threats are left, right, or unclassifiable from a Western context, the Chinese Communist Party is like monitoring it and they're just on it and they just send their robocops out there, censor, snuff it out. The U.S., fortunately, is not organized like that. And so I think we have a good shot at freedom. I actually think what we might actually overcorrect into anarchy, and we can talk about that. I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying we're there yet into anarchy. I think we have to move in the direction of freedom, but I do think we might overcorrect. We can talk about that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, just, go ahead. You go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just while we have you here, well, no, no, you, you replied to Balaji. Well, I was actually going to address the, the point you raised at the beginning, 
in connection to what Balaji said, which is this idea, you know, that a lot of your listeners or some of your listeners have different end goals than you have, that maybe they have a more radical vision of what Bitcoin is intended to accomplish. And one of the things uh, that, that, that I, that is interesting to me about Bitcoin and, and, and then began to concern me is how it has been confined to this narrow ideological camp in a way that doesn't make rational sense. People on the left should be, if you follow their, the premises of their stated political and ideological beliefs, favorable toward and eat supportive of, highly supportive of Bitcoin technology because they certainly want to liberate themselves from centralized corporate control. And maybe in the kind of utopian vision that they have, not necessarily from centralized state control, but certainly from state centralized state control as the state is currently constituted. And I would say the same is true of people on the right. And so it, you, if you use the analogy of encryption, a tool to prohibit centralized state authorities or non-state actors from monitoring and subjecting us to surveillance and what we do on the internet, Lots of different ideological camps across the world, lots of different social and political movements have a strong interest in ensuring that that can be done. That's why, you know, the Pentagon, on the one hand, obsessed with spying on its adversaries, including the domestic population, but also eager to vest unto itself the ability to immunize itself from spying, invested in things like the Tor Project. Oftentimes, these technologies are of benefit. They can be a really powerful weapon, regardless of what your ultimate ideological vision is. You know, it doesn't really matter if you only want it to strengthen democracy or strengthen the individual, or if you have a more radical vision of abolishing the state or ushering in anarchy or some other more extreme political ideology. Anyone who's dissatisfied with the status quo and eager to free ourselves of centralized authority should be supportive of any technology that can do that, regardless of how it can then be used. And I think, you know, the other point I would make, um, the one that, that Balaji said, I do agree that there's no systemic discipline in the United States or the West more broadly to impose the kinds of censorship and control they wish they could. I saw this interview, there was this really interesting part of uh, Candace Owens' recent interview with, with Trump, where she was... I forget exactly the context, but disparaging the Chinese, I think the way the Chinese are treating their students or schools. And Trump, you know, essentially said, what do you mean? China, they do everything better than we do. You know, it was like the authoritarian's admiration for how efficient they are, you know, and his frustration that the United States is incapable of that level of harsh, you know, just efficacy in, in doing what, what they want to do. Sometimes, though, this kind of flailing, arbitrary censorship or other forms of repression can be quite dangerous as well. And I know, Balaji, you weren't intending to downplay it. So I agree with you. It's not systemic. That does create an opening. But I uh, but I also do think that the kind of flailing attempt to, to be repressive can be quite menacing. And what I ultimately want to do with this Bitcoin discourse is try and bring as many people in as possible and to talk about it in a way that ceases to alienate 
particular ideological camps who, for whatever reasons, have been trained quite effectively to be hostile to a technology that could actually empower them. Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, I, I, you know, one of the things I've, I've tried to do is speak to as many people as possible. And But what you were saying originally, it made me think of um, something one of my friends, Parker Lewis. He's been on the, the show a bunch of times. Um, but he he has this thing he says. He said, liberals are going to love Bitcoin when they figure out what it can do for lower income families, but Democrats will hate it. And conservatives will love Bitcoin when they figure out what it can do for the budget deficit, but Republicans will hate it. And I think the point he's trying to make is, is that uh, Bitcoin is a tool that can serve anyone. Uh, the people it's really a threat to is the uh, political elite, whether it's left or right, and therefore it really shouldn't become uh, an issue that divides us. Uh, us as people, like everyone can benefit. That's from why Hillary Clinton. I think the most interesting thing is Hillary Clinton has gone on a rampage against Bitcoin in the last nine months because whatever you want to say about her, she's not dumb. She's quite educated, informed, and smart, and she sees the threat Bitcoin poses to the prevailing global order that she loves. And then mm -hmm. Trump himself actually also, you know, recently said very similar, he's invoking very similar reasoning that Bitcoin was dangerous because it can subvert the hegemony of the American dollar. So I think you see the actual guardians of status quo power recognizing before its opponents the threat that Bitcoin poses. Mm. Elizabeth Warren's the same. She's been a, yeah. she's been attacking on Bitcoin as well. But there there are some kind of movements uh, uh, that of certain politicians support it. Ted Cruz has recently come out in support of it. Actually, most of Texas supports Bitcoin, but that kind of makes sense, really. I was uh, with Governor Abbott a couple of months ago, and he was seeing the job creation with Bitcoin mining in Texas. Um, so it, it's not a, a universal hate across the political spectrum, but it definitely has... Uh, more support uh, within the Republican Party than it does within the Democrat Party. Well, one thing I want to say, by the way, on this is basically um, actually three or four comments. Um, I just pasted in a link there where, um, you know, so Glenn, to your point, uh, it isn't just Trump who, you know, was basically like uh, uh, Jack Goldsmith, you know, a couple of years ago had this article in The Atlantic, internet speech will never go back to normal in the debate over freedom versus control of the global network. China was largely correct and the US was wrong. <laughs> and the New York Times also had this article, free speech is killing us, noxious language online is causing real world violence. What can you do about it? Now, of course, you know, my one liner on that is, it is true when the New York Times writes, free speech is killing us. It is true because it is killing them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when they when they say our democracy, they mean our in the possessive sense, like the New York Times is democracy, yep. right? right. Um, and uh, so the thing is that, you know, they were, uh, they were pro free speech when it was controlled. They equated, quote, free speech with freedom of the press, meaning freedom of media corporations to do whatever they wanted. And you could go and yell on your street corner, but you lack the distribution. You know, one thing I, I think about actually, you know, 30 years ago, uh, you know, the Unabomber was, uh, you know, like that was happening like early 90s, late 80s, like 1990, 1991. And if we think about what he did, people know his essay and so on, but people forget one other aspect, which is uh, his big thing was to try to get an op-ed into the Washington Post. That was why he killed all those people. Do you remember that? Right, Glenn? Yep. yep. And, so yeah, so actually on your point, it's not just, you know, Trump on that particular thing or sort of wishing for, you know, the, the Chinese state's powers. Like, um, uh, you know, there's this article uh, in The Atlantic a couple of years ago, internet speech will never go back to normal in the debate over freedom versus control of the global network. China was largely correct and the U.S. is wrong by Jack Smith and Andrew Keen Woods. And there's another one in The Times Similar, free speech is killing us. Noxious language online is causing real-world violence. What can we do about it? You know, in the New York Times, right? So, you know, first observation, of course, is when they say free speech is killing us, 
they're right, it's killing them, the New York Times. And it's like when they say our democracy, they, they're meaning our in the sense of a possessive, like, you know, the thing that the Salzburger family holds tight to their vest, right? Um, just like they, you know, they run these billboards declaring the truth is the New York Times, that the truth is like one man's private property, you know, this guy, Arthur Salzburger, that owns the New York Times and inherited from his father, right? So these guys, they... Um, they also, on the left, pine for these ability to impose speech controls. And, you know, Glenn, I completely agree with you that um, it, it, I, I'm saying it is a it is a mercy that they're so incompetent. Um, but nevertheless, their censorship, even if it's random and disorganized and a function of what they see on Twitter that day, is, I totally agree, still dangerous. Okay, so uh, I think we're, we're on the same page there. We're very fortunate it's just not as systematic as the Chinese variety, which means that we can potentially build a freer society despite this attempt to kind of squash, squash things out. Um, the other thing is on, you know, sort of uh, like politics of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is so huge right now. There's only the order of like a few hundred million holders that it's like a state, you know, it's like a large state, right? It's like the U.S. roughly comparably, depending on how you estimate it. Last year, Cambridge estimated, uh, meaning that last year, 2020, late 2020, um, there's a Cambridge state that estimated about 100 million holders. And that was before the whole, you know, year of 2021. So there's hundreds of millions of people. And so, of course, there's going to be differences. One thing I just say, by the way, is I think about it as um, you know, 100% democracy as opposed to the current state of 51% democracy. In 51% democracy, you have this vote, the barest clearing of this 51% bar, and now 51% can coerce the other 49%, and they think they've got unlimited power to do that. But actually, the more narrow the victory, the less you should coerce the other side, the more consensus in theory you should operate um, because you don't have a mandate, right? You don't have everybody on your side. And if you try to coerce them, what happens is 2% flip the other way. And then you, you know, you repeat it again every four years. And that's basically what's been happening in the U S over the last, you know, several, several decades. Whereas hundred percent democracy, the concept is you have a jurisdiction where everybody's basically opted in and that might start digitally and then eventually come physically, but everybody's chosen to be there. They've signed the social smart contract. Now, that's a whole separate kind of topic, but just on your point about like destroy democracy, I actually believe in hundred percent democracy and meaning, uh, vote with your ballot, yes, but also your wallet and your feet towards your jurisdictions. And a V1 of that is people moving to Miami, people moving to El Salvador, people moving to Austin, people moving to jurisdictions. And so they're not simply voting in place where they can get aggregated and diluted out. They're also moving and expressing choice, not just voice, right? Um, okay, that's one. Then the second is on in terms of the political orientation. One way I think about it is you, you guys know the political compass with the four boxes, Yes, Glenn, yep. you've seen it. Uh, I'm not sure. What, what, just go ahead and describe it's, it. It's basically, uh, you know, it's got it's got these four boxes, and it's like um, authoritarian left. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, like the quadrants. The quadrants, right? And it's kind of it's a thing for memes and so on, right? Okay, and so the way I kind of think about that is, you know, the top left quadrant is authoritarian left. Top right is authoritarian right. Uh, bottom left is libertarian left. Bottom right is libertarian right. Right, and. Um, you could think of them as respectively socialist, nationalist, internationalist, and capitalist, right? Okay. Now, uh, the way I, uh, that I, I think we're seeing a realignment now is that like Hillary Clinton would be top left and Trump would be top right. Um, and you would be, you know, like uh, you and I, I think are heterodox, but be maybe caricatured or pigeonholed as lower left and lower right, libertarian left and libertarian right, respectively, right? And, um, you know, the, you know, I think our views are all over the map, but let's just say if, if, if caricatured. And so what I think is happening is there, there is a, uh, there's a different coalition than in the 20th century. That is to say, in the 20th century, we sort of assumed that nationalists and capitalists were together on the right. 
And actually now I think it is socialists and nationalists, like the authoritarians versus the libertarians, socialists and nationalists versus internationalists and capitalists. And because that's what crypto is, that's what Bitcoin is, it's internationalists and capitalists, whereas the state is now socialist and nationalist. And um, you know, so you can think of it as authoritarian, libertarian, you can think of it as uh, centralized versus decentralized, very related framing. I think another couple of angles that are interesting are federal versus state and local. That is to say, I think you're going to see way more state and local Democrats that are into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and fewer federal Republicans that are into it. Like the guy who voted, uh, you know, for this, the bill last year against this, uh, this amendment, this guy Shelby, uh, it was, is like a militarist Republican, you know? So those are the folks who are going to be against Bitcoin because they like empire, you know, they like the big guns and so on. Right. That's where Trump um, was coming from, right? That exactly. This should be the strongest country in the world. Yeah. And Bitcoin is a threat to that. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's, it's a kind of, and so the, so I think really federal versus state local is another important axis. And then also the U S and PRC versus the rest of the world. Right. So, America and China, so as you kind of group and you can do different cuts, right? So I'd say, A, one axis is like authoritarians versus libertarians or centralized versus decentralized. B, another axis is federal versus state and local within the US. And C, on a global stage, the US and PRC are against this, but I think the rest of the world is going to be for it because it's a counterbalance against either US empire or the new Chinese empire. People don't want the new boss to be even worse than the old boss in some ways, but they also don't like what the old boss is doing. And so this gives them genuine independence. So those are at least three ways I think about this thing moving politically. Yeah, I got, I I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think these, even the, I think the authoritarian libertarian dichotomy is stronger than ever. I think the left versus right is probably more confused and jumbled and and weaker than ever, which I think is is a good thing. I think the defining division politically, certainly in the West, maybe even the world more broadly, is between people who continue to believe not just in the current order of institutional authority, but institutional authority in general versus people who believe in the primacy of the individual, either as a theory or an ideology or because they just believe that global institutions of authority are so corrupted and so menacing that subverting them is the primary goal. To me, that defines where you fall on the political spectrum much more uh, compellingly than than these kind of old left-right categories, which are still relevant, but not nearly as much so, in part because they're pretty ill-defined at this point. I'm always interested, whenever I'm talking to people who are enthusiasts of Bitcoin, to hear the responses to what, to me, are not just the most common, but compelling critiques. And I just want to ask about two in particular. One that comes from, I would say that comes from the left, that's part of the left-wing resistance to it, which is that in reality, it's really just kind of a replica of a new form of oligarchy. There were these small numbers of early investors. Like now there's, as you were saying, hundreds of millions, but I don't know what the percentages are. I've seen like 90% of Bitcoin wealth in the hands of like, you know, a tiny number of people. And therefore, driving up the price of Bitcoin by talking it up has at least one primary effect is to create an entire new oligarchy of people who are these early investors who are invested in it very early, who have large quantities of it, which is a small number of people, and that Bitcoin will just reinforce the inequality it claims it's attempting to combat. And then I think on the other side, a more pragmatic concern, one I share, which is 
what is the reason that centers of power, which, you know, excel in nothing more than preserving their own power, will be incapable of dismantling this technology as a threat, either because it's becoming more and more centralized. People use things like Coinbase, which doesn't really provide a lot of anonymity, which gives the government kind of a clean target to go after, or breaking it down technologically the way that was done with encryption, or at the end of the day, if none of that works, just brute force, you know, outlawing it, making it a crime to use Bitcoin. What gives you the comfort or the confidence that it won't be destroyed using some combination of those tactics? So on the, like the, you know, the new boss, same as the old boss aspect of the oligarchy. So first is the US dollar and Bitcoin, like um, holdings, you know, like th those people, those are almost, I shouldn't say disjoint sets, but they're very different groups. You know, the kind of person who's an early investor in Bitcoin is typically not somebody who's very powerful in the existing U.S. establishment. Um, they're people who are alienated from the system in some way. They believe that the Fed has, you know, been bailing things out and so on and so forth. So at a minimum, just from a math standpoint, when you actually have two hierarchies, you've actually uh, reduced inequality because you've made a bunch of new people rich and you've actually made a bunch of the existing people less rich. So just right there, math, I could show that mathematically or whatever, but essentially Bitcoin is a gigantic redistribution of wealth. Yes, to a new group of people, but because it's a new group of people, you've actually globally reduced it. But not necessarily more equitably. Right? It's, a re it's a redistribution. And it would kind of be like, you take away the billions of dollars that billionaires have, and instead of distributing it to everyone, you just give it to a new group of a thousand people, and now you've created a new group of a thousand billionaires. And I understand your point. Sure. It's better to have so, two so right, so groups I'll, of a thousand millionaires than just one, but still, that's I, the critique. I understand. So, so the V one is basically just that. Even today, it actually has reduced inequality in that there's a whole new class of people who are millionaires or or thousandaires or whatever, right? That, that's kind of the first point. The second point is the longer term effect of it actually helps everybody, including the poor, because it checks inflation, and inflation is. Uh, a much worse thing. See, for for you know moderately wealthy people and above, they can keep the vast majority of their assets in equities, which can keep up with the pace of inflation. But for the poor, their their savings are destroyed. You know, what's it, meager savings they have are destroyed by inflation. They won't always get wage increases uh, that keep up with uh, you know their their cost increases. And so, essentially, Bitcoin moving us into a system where there's just just significantly less systematic inflation allows even poor people to to build up. And so that I think is a fundamental difference versus the old system. Those are at least two points I'd make. The third I'd make, which Peter won't agree with, but I, I agree with, is that if you expand it from BTC to Web3, now you actually have uh, an enormous number of new mechanisms for wealth creation that I do think are going to break the pinata of Facebook and so on. And rather than it being $2 trillion is just held by the shareholders of FB, it'll be like $10 trillion held by all of these decentralized, you know, Facebooks around the world. And I think we're already seeing that. Okay. So those are kind of three arguments, but just to recap, A, like it actually has reduced inequality so far because the, these holders are different than the old ones. B, it cuts inflation dramatically, which allows people to save. And C is it allows folks in India or Brazil or, you know, Eastern Europe or Japan or something to build protocols that compete with American tech companies, American entities, American media companies, and thereby decentralize wealth that way. So that's my answer on that. On, on the second one, on the centers of power, this is a good question. Um, the, the short answer is, in my view, that uh, the Chinese state is dangerously competent and the American state is dangerously incompetent. 
Um, and what I mean by that is I do think the Chinese, uh, like I think the future is Chinese control, American anarchy, and an international intermediate. Um, that is to say, like today in the U.S., we're in this weird era of like anarcho-tyranny where, you know, in San Francisco, a working class guy will get a $200 ticket for having, you know, his, his car parked on the wrong side of the road or for, you know, like a minute over. Uh, but the guy who smashes his window or poops in the street, nothing happens to him, right? So the working class guy, the blue collar guy, uh, you know, is, is basically terrorized. Um, and the super rich person can kind of insulate themselves from all of this. But the, uh, the, the uh, so you have this anarchy combined with tyranny where the um, working class person is tyrannized, middle class person is tyrannized, but there's like anarchy on the streets. Um, I think though that is actually a transitional phase and it's going to like just melt down because there's so many different things where the U.S. government is taking huge L's both domestically and around the world. It's it's not just a loss in Afghanistan. Um, it's not just China telling the U.S. point blank that it doesn't have power anymore at this recent like Alaska conference with with Blinken and 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 uh, uh, the, the Chinese. It's not just like Russia trying its stuff in Crimea. It's not just El Salvador flipping off the IMF. It's not just 17 states domestically suing over education. It's not just, you know, Texas doing this abortion bill and then California responding with its own thing. It's not just, you know, cities going Bitcoin. It's not just Wyoming doing its Dow law. It is basically massive resistance, both inside and outside the United States, where like on the order of 50% of the population just doesn't listen to the federal government anymore. And that's both left and right deviation. Um, and, uh, you know, then abroad, lots of states just don't listen either. Like, you know, during the Obama administration, they were still like, they, they controlled the state enough that they could go and, uh, you know, get Switzerland to, you know, like open up all their bank accounts and so on. More recently under this admin, um, they tried to sanction Germany over Nord Stream 2. They tried to sanction India, both in Germany and India were trading with Russia. And they weren't able to make it stick, right? Germany's basically stuck firm and said, you know, F you, the U.S., we really need this energy pipeline. And so the U.S. like vacillated and then eventually let the pipeline happen. And then did these sort of petulant sanctions on Germany anyway that didn't matter, but let the pipeline go through. And the same thing with India, right? So the federal government of the U.S. is weak and getting weaker and it's taking all kinds of L's because... Basically, the way I think about it is it's founding versus inheriting. All these folks who are rising, you know, to power or whatever now, they're just actors. They don't actually have skills. Like Pete Buttigieg, you know, this transportation secretary, is taking a four-month vacation in the middle of this gigantic supply chain crisis, okay? Um, that's because he's an actor. Like the actual, you know, logistics CEO, somebody like, you know, Ryan, Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport, who actually gets in, debugs, figures out, you know, what's going on in the ports, right? So we have this whole thing where these people are literally selected for being actors on social media. And then we wonder why they aren't like amazing generals and, you know, like these really, really great at construction and, and so on. They're, they're literally actors, you know, Reagan and Trump and so on, you know, Al Franken, we see that but we don't fully see how systemic that is, right? It's all a facade, it's all a Potemkin village. The American government is a Potemkin village. We also saw that with the US military during COVID where for decades they had had all of this bioterrorism, you know, uh, budget allocated billions and billions of dollars. They said they had fast vaccines, all this stuff. And they were completely MIA. So this entire part of the government that had been funded to the tune of billions that had justified itself in terms of defending the homeland versus WMDs, of which bioterrorism was one of them, was completely MIA, totally missing in action. And so once you realize this, you realize huge parts of the US government 
are now just Potemkin villages, which is different than what we grew up with because, you know, you see movies that say, oh, the US military can protect us from aliens and so on, or even movies like Contagion, right? You know you know that movie, right, from, yep. from 2010? Yeah, we talked about that before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it portrays the CDC as like these competent, you know, smart bureaucrats fighting this power. Like it, it essentially, though you don't realize it, it is Santa Claus for adults. That doesn't exist. There, there is no competent U.S. government. They're all idiots. Like the federal government, they're really stupid. Um, the, 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 the people you see on Twitter are the actual people. I mean, they're the actor versions, but that's a level of cognition. And um, so, so they've just basically been put into a tank where they don't even understand how to push the buttons. And that's why you see like Navy ships colliding. That's why you see overruns on the F-35 and the Zumwalt and all of these like military installations, just like in the civilian things where the subways cost hundreds of millions of dollars, the bus lanes cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's basically like the, you know, third or fifth generation kid who inherits a factory that he could never build. He can push a button and the widgets come out. But one day when he needs to switch it from widgets to masks or to guns, he's completely in over his skis because he can't make a change. And that's the fundamental thing. This establishment cannot handle the change of the internet. So they're trying to do is jam it back into the box, right? Push it in, back into the garage, use what powers they have, right? But even there, they're too ADD to like truly do that. And they kind of lost a lot of energy after 2021 and they didn't push it all the way. And now the backlash has come enough and the BTC and Web3 and so on have, have grown enough that I don't think they're going to be able to do it. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get that $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S, .casa. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is BTB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB2. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB. And you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. 
And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. That's my model for your second question, which is yep. why they couldn't do it. They want to, but they lack the competency to do it. Yeah, they they, yeah All yeah. the builders are out. Which is encouraging, right? I mean, and I think, you know, yeah. I, going back to that Pete Buttigieg example, I found that also a vivid window into a lot of what's going on because in general, the idea that the person who's nominally in charge of the supply chain would take four months off to go take care of a baby to which he didn't give birth in the middle of a supply chain crisis would be something that would just be inherently objectionable given the hundreds of millions of people adversely affected by that crisis. He's decided- Including their babies. To take a vacation. Including their babies. Medications, all kinds of things were delayed. No, I mean, that. every yeah. conceivable, you know, part of, of life is, is adversely affected by that. And yet the one ideology to which American elites do maintain allegiance is, is woke ideology, which holds that, for example, questioning whether Pete Buttigieg someone who's not a woman who gave birth to an infant who therefore needs to care for the infant physiologically, but as an adoptive father should be treated on equal terms and given four months of a fraternity leave um, to go take care of an infant that doesn't actually rely upon him physically when he has this incredibly important position he's assumed because of his social media stardom is something that can't even be questioned because it's the fulfillment of the only actual ideology that remains vibrant among these elites, which is this, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity, woke ideology, which is in obvious conflict with a lot of the core competence that they used to display in maintaining this iron grip on the imperialist and corporatist order. And on some level, it's part of why I'm glad that they've decided to pursue those ends as opposed to the ones they used to pursue. They believe they're still adherents to each, but because there's such an internal conf conflict between the two, because the woke ideology weakens and erodes the ability to maintain the prevailing, the previous prevailing order, on some level, it's to be applauded as kind of nauseated, nauseating as it is in many of its expressions. And, uh, you know, I think, but but I also, I think that that's really the goal. I don't think their goal as, you know, kind of Western elites is to impose a Chinese style system of repression that can't be resisted. 
think I daydream it's more about propagandistic. It yeah, but I think, yes, yeah. but I think it's propaganda as opposed to yeah. brute force yep. that is their instrument of choice. Absolutely. And that can be, you know, Chomsky has talked a lot about this using Orwell. Orwell wrote about this a lot as well, that, you know, co-opting mind is a more powerful way of control and censorship and repression than using iron bars and cages because it doesn't provoke as much resistance because people aren't aware they're being controlled. You know, it's like, what Rosa Luxemburg said, that he who does not move does not notice his chains, right? So as you, if you convince people that their captivity is freedom, they'll fight back against it a lot less than if they know they're being brute repressed. And, you know, that propaganda is still very strong. And I think, you know, this what's, what we're really seeing, and this is part of that centralized control, and this is what worries me more than, I don't think they're going to stomp out every attempt to create a rumble or a parlor, have a Joe Rogan here, or, you know, someone, some dissident there. I think the idea more so is to create as closed of a system as possible where propaganda persuades people that they're free as opposed to obedient by redefining all of these words like disinformation and hate speech and misinformation to mean anything that deviates from neoliberal hegemony or woke ideology, and therefore people believe it's necessary, not just justified, but necessary to censor it, to repress it, to put people in prison who are adherents to it, because it's not just a different way of looking at the world, but something criminalized. And I agree with you, there was less formal legalistic repression after January 6th than there could have been. But the mindset of watching, you know, all of the people who participated in that January 6th protest that turned into a riot being sent to prison for three and four and five years after being held in solitary confinement for over a year, even ones who didn't use any violence at all, and and watching pretty much the entire establishment applaud it is the kind of chilling effect that propaganda can have you know, by just constantly calling it an insurrection, which implies that there's this criminal movement amidst amongst us that needs these more extreme and radical means in order to control and, and repress it. That, I think, is the bigger threat than thinking that American elites are finally going to stumble into the ability to, you know, impose a Chinese-style efficiency. Yeah. Well, and, there's, and, uh, well, I was just going to say there's similar propaganda that's being used against Bitcoin itself, specifically yeah. on the energy side of things, whereby if you, you actually measure the energy usage by Bitcoin and how much is from renewables, it actually is negligible compared to other parts of the economy, but it's used to demonize Bitcoin certain, and more so on the left. On but can, energy you, can, can, can you talk about that a little bit? Because, I mean, now it's negligible. I think the argument is if your vision is fulfilled... Peter and Balaji's vision of Bitcoin is fulfilled, it's going to be a lot less negligible, that there will be yeah. enormous amounts of mining necessary to sustain this currency grounded in some actual thing in the world. So let me let me talk speak to this, because I think actually sometimes there's situations where you you have to like kind of put the ball on the hundred yard line rather than the zero yard line and just start from a different set of premises, right? And so the short version is um what Bitcoin does is it's a global system of property rights, right? It it protects now like more than a trillion dollars, may eventually be $10 trillion. It's the thing that every government will probably eventually want to have in its coffers, just like gold was the constraint. Uh, you know, the ungovernable governor of governments, actually, I was talking to Breedlove about this actually the other day. Um, 
And uh, Rob Breedlove, he's another podcaster. So if gold is this thing that's, that's standing above states, if digital gold is this thing that's standing above states and it's guarding the property rights of literally billions of people, that is something you're going to want an energy budget for. That's a, that's a legitimate thing. And it's cheaper than tanks and planes and, and missiles and police and, and so on and so forth. So number one is it's a security budget where we're securing things in a different way. And, the, and, well, the and actually, it's, but largely, it's also more energy efficient than the military industrial complex. Right. Okay. So that gets to the second thing. Is The other thing is also that um, I'm certainly in favor of energy efficiency, but there's a curve you should look at called the Henry Adams curve. Okay. And it shows that basically if you change, there's this great book called Where's My Flying Car? Okay. Um, it just got reissued by Stripe Press. Really worth reading. I, I, 10 of 10. It's it's like extremely well-written. I, I found it great. Um, it has lots of cites and stuff, uh, citations. So one of the, the things about it, it's got this great curve called the Henry Adams curve. And um, essentially it shows that energy production was rising continuously up until about 1970 when it kind of flatlined out. And the thing about that is that's around the time that people started to get scared of nuclear power, scared of all this other stuff. And um, we've kind of been routed into rabbit holes of like, you know, massive windmill farms and solar. And, and I'm not saying those things don't have their, 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 uh, their role, but nuclear energy is finally back on the menu. And in fact, again, you may not know about this, but China is absolutely vertical in terms of its nuclear installation. It's been building tons of nuclear power plants. It, as a country, is back on the Henry Adams curve. And so what I think Bitcoin is doing, and you're actually seeing this in Wyoming, you're seeing this in El Salvador, you're seeing this in other places, it's actually incentivizing the buildout of massive scalable nuclear energy and other clean energy generation at scale. And the thing is, what that does is it reframes it. It is not saying, um, you know, generate dirty power. It's also not saying generate, uh, you know, um, like like degrowth or abolish industrialized economy or you know like like you know energy consumption is bad. It's saying energy production is good and we're going to produce a ton more of it because it's actually not a scarce thing and we're going to go nuclear and we're actually going to do that. So that's I think the reframe on it is that Bitcoin gives the decentralized incentive for massive scalable clean energy production. We're already seeing this happen. Um, and as opposed to the, what and, the Chinese and I are think, doing, I think I think the reason why I think that's interesting is because I do think there's this. I wouldn't, I don't want to overstate it, but sure. a kind of emerging regret on the left, or at least a recognition that the opposition to nuclear power was a mistake, yes. which almost you have to acknowledge if your argument is, is that there has never been a threat as severe, not even close, as climate catastrophe caused by fossil fuels, the alternative, the opportunity to have developed and relied upon an alternative 30 and 40 years ago that the left marched against around the world in order to stop and prevent, you'd have to say that that was a mistake. Exactly. And I think also if it's fully understood that building power plants is an alternative to building missiles, right? You know, that's to say Bitcoin really does reduce violence in the system. That is like the fundamental thing where un unless that's actually like be Brought. Because of it, because yeah. it d displaces the American dollar? Is that the argument, the primary not, argument? Not just the dollar. It, it is a way to store money uh, on, on, a, on a blockchain where you it's secured. Let, let me put it like this, okay? Um, let's say you have a gold brick in your room, okay? Ultimately, the only way you can secure that is with sufficient number of guns to hold off attackers who are coming to come and grab it. 
right? Whether those guns are yours or the police's or the military's, like the border around the country, that pile of gold is only secured by the physical force that you can deploy, right? If some yep. bad guy wants to take it, yeah? Yep, yep. And, but Bitcoin is not like that. If you have, um, you know, a private key, that, pri you know, th that, that cryptocurrency is now in the cloud and uh, people may not even know that some, like a Venezuelan government going after somebody may not even know that that person has it because it's invisible. It won't be seen in a metal detector. It, um, it is basically wealth uh, that people can save in the uh, where where a government cannot actually apply force to that person to get it. It's, or even a, a robber, it's much harder for them to do so. I'm not saying it's a panacea. I'm not saying it solves every single problem, but as a it is a fundamentally new way of protecting property. It, go, it goes very deep, like the whole Lockean theory of why the state exists partly is about the guardian of property rights. Right. And now we have a way of guarding them with encryption as opposed to physical force. I just want to do uh, throw in a couple of things on your other two questions or points, Glenn. So, a couple, um, some of the statistics relating to Bitcoin distribution, uh, some of the report on that has been misleading. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll use something like a Coinbase address. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. a big a big pool of Bitcoin capital when really that's representative of maybe hundreds of thousands, of maybe even millions of Bitcoin holders, but they're custodying it with Bitcoin rather than uh, taking it to its own wallet. Uh, and I'd also love to dig out, there are articles out there showing that uh, over time, Bitcoin distribution is actually increasing. Uh, but you do make a, a fair point on you know, what do these new uh, large holders of Bitcoin do? What will they do in the future if they're, you know, We've got people who are holding uh, billions of dollars in Bitcoin. Michael Saylor has managed to build up a, a Bitcoin war chest. What happens when that's tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions? And, and, we, and some of them we don't know who they are, right? We, they're, they're, they're Bitcoin billionaires out there whose identity is unknown and therefore whose intentions are unknown. Yeah, and, and, and it, it is a fair question. And, and the truth is we don't know. Uh, but one of the experiences I've had being in the Bitcoin community and doing this work is that there is this kind of uh, ideological view that they this is a group of people who wants to make the world better and it's a very gen generous community uh, lots there is lots of money uh, redistributed for example bitcoin relies on open source developers so a lot of people Bilagi probably included myself uh, we take part of our bitcoin and we donate that towards these projects and i see a lot of money being donated towards projects but we really don't know it, 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 we really don't know but what we do know is that the redistribution is happening and uh, at a time where I think what we've seen with the, especially during the COVID era with the increase in the money supply, that has actually uh, uh, created further wealth inequality. We know during a time of Bitcoin, that's reduced uh, wealth inequality. Uh, but it's a fair question. Um, and the second thing, in terms of uh, destroying or the state uh, banning Bitcoin, there's some interesting points to that. I mean, if the U.S. government was to completely outlaw uh, ownership of Bitcoin, that would be devastating for the price of Bitcoin, but it would not destroy Bitcoin. What would happen is you would see uh, uh, the migration of certain people to places like El Salvador. It would, but it would be devastating on the price in the short term. But Bitcoin has you know, gone through many tough times and challenges and always survived. But what I think is a more interesting point is the game theory around banning Bitcoin. Uh, a large number of the big companies in the US are Bitcoin companies. Sorry, a large number of the Bitcoin companies, uh, the, certainly the most successful ones are based in the US. A large amount of Bitcoin is held in the US. So by destroying Bitcoin or banning Bitcoin, what you would actually be doing is destroying parts of the economy, which would be super unpopular with you know, people who hold Bitcoin, would be unpopular with companies. But also at the moment, at the moment where Bitcoin is growing, and every you know four years we see this 10, 20 
X increase in the value, I actually think it puts the US in an advantageous position over China. It makes the US a more wealthy country. So the game theory around banning it um, becomes it becomes more problematic for the US government as time goes on. And I, I personally think we've got to that point where we're, we're heading, we're very close to, it's almost, there's, there's no logical reason for it to be banned apart from maybe a few elites within the political system who see it as a threat to them as individuals. Right. I mean, I, there, there, but there's legal measures short of banning it. So right? you could force transparency requirements with it. There was, there was a lot of talk about this with encryption really early on in the advent of the internet. In fact, the Clinton administration seized on the bombing of the uh, courthouse in Oklahoma City to claim that there was this grave domestic terror threat, somewhat similar to the rhetoric now. And as a result, encryption was something that couldn't be tolerated. And there was proposals to require backdoor access on the part of the government to encryption. They're very good at seizing on these kind of dangers to justify legislative or regulatory requirements to make it controllable, subject to their control. So I, I mean, I think you're right. Just an outright ban on Bitcoin is a very extreme, you know, reaction. But measures short of that to make it less uh, susceptible to shielding privacy and creating anonymity and the other promises that it holds, those I could see as being more viable. There's two two key areas in kind of like what Bitcoin offers, which I think um, they need to be looked at separately. One is the the privacy side, and then the other side is the 21 million fixed cap. And I think some people care about one more than the other. Uh, you know, we we live in a world now where there are people who care about privacy, but really with our mobile phones, we're tracked everywhere. We know our banks are being uh, we're being tracked. Uh, uh, all our financial tracks, uh, transactions are being surveilled. We know our calls are being surveilled. So I think there's maybe some people, and I'm not going to speak for everyone, but have come to that acceptance that they don't have high levels of privacy, but at the same time they're still happy to own Bitcoin because the 21 million gives them future wealth protection. So yes, that angle of of having to be tracked or you know uh, declare your Bitcoin holdings in terms of you know financial tracking and paying taxation that certainly that certainly harms the privacy side of Bitcoin, but that doesn't harm the 21 million and uh, another reason people might want to own it. Now, on that side of things, they can make life more difficult. Uh, what I think one of the best attacks they probably have on Bitcoin is to ban Bitcoin mining. That, to me, would be a real threat mm -hmm. because proof of work is uh, is so important to Bitcoin. We would not want to move Bitcoin to proof of stake. Uh, right. So you're right to identify there are things out there, but, but I think we're getting close to the point of no return on Bitcoin within certain Western governments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, I think what what I think is going to maybe happen. Um, first of all, there's now a constituency for Bitcoin in the U.S., and that constituency has a lot of high IQ people across the political spectrum. Actually, nowadays, yes, maybe it's like sixty forty or fifty five forty five on on the right, but like, no, it's getting like better for sure. It's getting better, absolutely getting better in terms of the ideological diversity. Yeah, yeah. They're like like Ro Khanna and a bunch of other folks, there are like 10 Democrats that wrote in about it. It is becoming a seriously bipartisan thing if it isn't already. And um, like Dennis Porter actually retweeted something on that. There's this, there's, there's there are a bunch of efforts now this year, like, uh, uh, gosh, uh, Erica Rhodes, um, who's running against Brad Sherman. So she's a Democrat and she's into Bitcoin. Um I, you know, Eric Adams, who's the mayor of New York City, he's a Democrat, he's into Bitcoin. Jared Police, governor of Colorado, he's a Democrat, he's into Bitcoin, and, and on and on, right? So I think that, um, I think it'll be fairly difficult 
I'm not saying that it might not be some crazy person who propose a ban, but now there's a real constituency against it. And you're, I mean, such a thing would be like, you know, the executive order 6102, like an attempted seizure, you know, where the seizure yeah. of gold. But I don't think it would be, I mean, if you think about like the response to no, the but I guess, I guess what I'm saying, I guess what, what I'm ultimately saying is the closer we get to your vision of this being a genuine material threat to the prevailing order, the more extreme necessarily will be the responses they consider. Because like I said before, what ruling power centers do by their nature is act in self-preservation. So yes. right now we're somewhat distant from that vision. And so the reactions are more tepid. But as that vision becomes closer, you would expect the reactions to become more severe. Yes. So, but here's the thing I think about on that. Um, here's an analogy from venture capital land or whatever. Okay. So, you know, Peter Thiel, because he invested in the very first round of Facebook, was able to buy 10% of Facebook for about $500,000. Okay. Which is now today, that's that would crazy. be- yeah. That's crazy, right? So today uh, it's like a, you know, I, I don't know the exact valuation, right? Between a trillion and two trillion. So the 10% would be about a hundred billion dollars. Okay. So the earlier you react to something when it's exponentially growing, the cheaper it is to buy into it or mitigate it or what have you. And the one thing that the American establishment is not good at is early spotting of issues. You know, in, in venture, you'd say that they, they pay up right? They only can see something. See, here's the reason why. The American establishment can only see something that is of the size that it's like an electoral constituency, okay? Meaning really close to 50%. No, this least- is this is really interesting. This is why I was saying, this is, I find this so interesting. You're absolutely right. I mean, how long have people been talking about Bitcoin in this increasingly pervasive way? I mean, at least a decade, Yep. And these comments I referenced earlier by Hillary Clinton were noticeable precisely because it was really the first time that major political figures in the political establishment of the world's most powerful con- country or or second most powerful country, depending on how you wanted to look at it, <laughs> actually started acknowledging its existence, right? It like took a decade and then there's still most people inside the U.S. government who couldn't speak for more than 30 seconds on what Bitcoin even is. Exactly, that's right. And so what's happened is... Um, uh, all of the, uh, you know, the early adopter, trend spotter, that kind of talent does not go into government anymore. It's in venture, it's in angel, it's in founders, or it's in your your line of work, like the sub stackers and so on, the true decentralized journalists and writers. It's not in the U.S. government. And so what that means is basically, since they, they have like glasses that can only see things that are at the level of an electoral constituency, they just don't take it seriously if it's less than that. And the thing is that in our age, the internet age, something can go from 0.001% to like 20% really fast, right? And so then they're on the back foot. And here's the thing, here's why it's hard. In order to to actually then start looking and spotting things that are at 0.001%, you know how many are at 0.001%? I see thousands of deals a year, okay? So you have to develop an entire, like almost like a... um, uh, like a metal detector or a radiation detector that's capable of detecting these small particles that could get really huge, right? And then properly filtering them. And those are the skills of a founder or a venture capitalist, right? And, uh, you know, now what's interesting is that on the Chinese side, um, and again, I just bring it up because it's actually, it is like a split screen where you can see, you know, the Chinese started from a very, very small base. If you saw 
the photos of China in the 80s, like it's a pretty poor country, right? The Americans started from, you know, like number one, but there's a civilizational diabetes thing sometimes where prosperity actually leads to its ruin because people get so fat and happy and contented and, you know, they've inherited everything. They think it's always there on a silver platter. They assume the U.S. is number one. Whereas Andy Grove has this concept of only the paranoid survive. Okay. The Chinese definitely took that to heart. They're all engineers, you know, they're engineers or soldiers. So like electrical engineer, chemical engineer, et cetera. And so they do spot a lot of these things early. I mean, for example, the great firewall, how many people in the U S government could even explain what a firewall is? I'm not, I'm not right. trying to put you guys on the spot, but very few. Right. Um, and whereas that's like a tool of policy in China, you know, and so this is just to say why I say, you know, the Chinese government is like dangerously competent and the American government is dangerously incompetent. I don't think the U.S. government is, I mean, it's it will react in some like really stupid flailing kind of way. It's probably going to be extremely nasty and, and whatnot, but it's like paying $100 billion rather than $500,000, you know, for 10% of Facebook. It's just at a certain point when you react that late in life, the cost just goes so high that they actually don't have the money to pay for it anymore. And that's the part they don't think people get. Like, you know, here's, let me give it a different, a different version then to kind of explain that. Um, 10 years ago, you know, Teal was talking about how the U.S. had stopped innovating. More recently, it's not just that the U.S. can't innovate, it's having difficulty maintaining, for example, a $300 million bus lane in San Francisco, okay? Like $300 million for this stuff. You can see it. It's actually ludicrous. You're not, it's not even right or left. It's just like completely incompetent government. They can't paint stripes on the road without you know, like a thousand regulations or something, you know, subways are like this in New York as well. All kinds of infrastructures like this, the cost overruns are just astronomical. And at a certain point, it becomes something you cannot afford because if you're really, really, really bad at allocating capital, it does not matter how rich you are. You know, if you're spending, you know, $10,000 on an orange juice, you know, every day, it doesn't matter if you've got $10 million, you're soon going to run out of money. Shirts, yeah, there was, shirts, just, shirts, there was just like excellent Chinese propaganda messaging, whatever you want to call it, that was that really just, you know, kind of put its finger on the essence of the matter when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban just marched back in the next day as though nothing had ever happened, which is basically what in fact occurred. Nothing in Afghanistan just kind of wasting two trillion dollars you know, two trillion dollars all yeah these i mean it was like a transfer of wealth it had its purpose it people benefited from it <laughs> oh, yeah, not, the military nothing to do with the buddy. stated purpose yeah. right like nothing sure. to do with like changing afghanistan and so they you know it's just like an incredible humiliation i mean like they just marched right back in as though like they weren't the slightest bit bothered with all the accompanying humiliations on the way out and the chinese said you spent 20 million, you know, the last 20 years spending $2 trillion in Afghanistan for absolutely nothing. Well, we spent $800 billion on high-speed railways that connected, you know, the, 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 like the most remote peasant to Beijing and everything in between. And that is really a great metaphor for the past of each country. And, you know, you see it now too. I mean, the U.S. about to like involve itself, you know, potentially in this insane proxy war with Russia and Ukraine and pouring gigantic sums of money into training these hapless, you know, or like extremist Ukrainian insurgency units, you know, and again, it's just a transfer of wealth to a group of people that will change nothing besides that. And and, and then everything else, and, and the incompetence there, I mean, the incompetence, again, comparing it to the state of goals, is a metaphor for how everything is taking place domestically. And I do think it's all falling apart. 
which do which I think does is a compelling argument for why they're going to have a great deal of because even brute force no longer really works. They can't even amass the force necessary any longer. As you said, you you could be as the richest country in the world, but if you can't if you don't have the competence to allocate the money, no matter how much you throw at it. It really makes no difference. It's like burning the money. Exactly. And that's the thing is the future of hard money is BTC and the future of hard power is CCP. And most people are only, many people are not modeling either of those two, right? Some people are in denial about one or the other. Most people are not modeling both, okay? And if you're modeling both, what it means is that the soft power propaganda state of NYT, you know, and I put them as kind of at the zenith of it, just as a side remark, by the way, one of my theses, I'd love to hear your view on this, Glenn, is that- um, you know, the reason that, you know, of the legacy power centers of the U.S., you know, you have academia and you have Hollywood and you have D.C. and you have media, the Pentagon. The reason that the media became sort of the point of the spear against tech is it was the only thing in the establishment that had the 24-7 metabolism of tech. They say it takes like a year to get a paper out in academia. It takes multiple years to get a law out. It takes like a year to get a film out. But the news media had a 24-hour cycle. So they became like, you know, sort of the most prominent part of the establishment. For example, you didn't see that many anti-tech films. You did see anti-tech books coming out of academia, but they were slow and they didn't, didn't really own the, the whole thing. It was really the press versus tech. Well, and also, also I think it's because like the media kind of commandeered the power of tech in order to empower themselves as a bulwark against it. I mean, yeah. the reason the New York Times is powerful now isn't because they distribute lots of physical papers to doorsteps. It's because the brand means that, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world listen to what they say over Facebook and Twitter and other, you know, YouTube and other social media platforms. So in a lot of ways, they've been able to commandeer the power of tech and use it against tech as well. I want to I want to talk about this for a second, actually, because I think this is like critically important. Um, the 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 zeroth point I was going to make, and then I'll jump into the other one, is they're totally leveraged on soft power. And when soft power runs out, and what does it mean when soft power runs out? When the Chinese say f you, when the Trumpers say f you, when the Russians say f you, when tech says f you, when Bitcoin says f you, when Web three says f you, when El Salvador says f you, when Germany and even India, like on the sanctions, say f you, when everybody says f you to USG. Then, you know, the soft power, the convincing, the propaganda, the poking, the shaming, they're just talking to their own echo chamber yep. now, yep. right? And then they want to bring out the gun, but they don't have it anymore. The hard power isn't there and they don't actually have the hard money either. That's going to go away soon. So I actually think that they're much, much more vulnerable than they think because they just sort of assume that that thing is there, but then it's like, you know, shooting blanks. We'll see what happens on that. Um, on the other thing, by the way, on tech media, by the way, I, I do think this is really critical, like in terms of how I look at the world. And I'd love to see, um, you know, sometimes like, you know how um, sometimes after wars or something, generals on opposing sides will kind of compare notes and they can kind of triangulate the history of the war from, because, oh, you were doing that, oh, I was doing this or whatever, you know. So the way I think about like tech and media you know, 30 years ago, tech basically didn't even exist as a sector, you know, or at least it was just like there was Silicon Valley doing chips and stuff. It wasn't really thought of as, as anything um, beyond like, you know, plastics or something like that. It was just, you know, tech. Um, and so it was really just media. And then what happened in, uh, here's my progression. In the year 2000-ish, uh, obviously there was the tech, you know, dot-com bubble and then crash. And what happened was actually tech and media took their own separate ways for about 10 years. And here's why. First, on the tech side, 
uh, this guy, Terry Semmel, ran Yahoo, and he was a media guy, Hollywood guy. And uh, it was basically a relative failure versus Google and Dropbox and Facebook and YouTube and so on. And everybody in tech basically took the lesson that do user-generated content, not your own content. That say, just build the pipes, allow people to bring their own content because content has risk. You can spend a lot of time on it. It could just fizzle out. Instead, let everybody just bring their own content. We just do the technology and we're just a dumb, basically not a dumb pipe, a smart pipe, or just a pipe. On the other hand, media thought the tech was not you know, interesting because they were focused on the Iraq war and all that stuff in the 2000s. And in fact, even by 2008, tech was not really considered a power because only Google was really making money on the internet. Um, you know, everybody else, like Facebook people, it wasn't a public company. People didn't know how big it was. It was a joke, Uber, it was a little bit of a joke. They was very condescending when it was talked about. It was very condescending. That's right. It was basically, people might've had a Mac, you know, as a gadget, but they only thought of it as a gadget. They didn't think it was yeah. a cultural thing, right? Okay. Right. So then what happened is from... 2008 to 2012, um, the financial crisis, all of these companies wanted to suddenly change their ad budgets. A ton of that money went into Google and Facebook. There's this graph called the print media disruption. And about from $67 billion of ad spend in about 2008 in print media, it went down to like $17 billion in like about four years. This absolutely ridiculous crash and Google and Facebook just going vertical and the iPhone going vertical. And, uh, you know, all these tech startups like Y Combinator found their legs. And this was this huge thing where a ton of the money that had been printed effectively found its way into tech via VC and, and, and angel investment and so on. And so by, uh, you know, even as late as December 2012, media, at least formally, thought of tech as being on the same side. That is, it was, at least it was, a, it was part of the Democrat coalition. Remember these articles about how uh, the nerds go marching in, you know, Obama's tech team helping him get reelected. Remember all that stuff? Like late yep. 2012, right? And then right after the election in January 2013, that's when the knives came out because media didn't need tech anymore to get Obama you know, elected again. There's now a gap to settle some scores. They are tired of these tech guys coming in and taking all their money. And so thus the big tech clash began where media companies couldn't build search engines or social networks. Um, but what they could do is write stories and shape narratives to paint all these tech guys as villains. Now, uh, at the time, as I mentioned, like generals on the opposite sides, um, you know, we were like, you know, watching, you know, the, the Snowden stuff and we're like, why are you guys demonizing Google and so on over this? Google's a victim here at the time because they did not want to, you know, like the NSA was doing this stuff without their, their knowledge, right? And they were getting like hammered in the headlines. And if you remember at the time, a bunch of the tech CEOs went and basically collectively confronted Obama about this. He tried to switch it to like a healthcare.gov conversation or something. They were all like, what, you know, stop the spying, et cetera. So at that time, the nobles, so to speak, were able to, quote, resist the king, um, like the Magna Carta is a group of nobles versus the king, and they were trying to push it back. And then, you know, essentially what happened was over the next several years, even before Trump, uh, what we now call wokeness, proto-wokeness was rising. The New York Times basically adopted the strategy, but they figured out was going to go viral online, was like dousing their articles in, you know, white privilege and heteronormativity and blah, blah. All these words went vertical and there's graphs showing that it all happened in 2013. Paul Graham has tweeted this. If you Google like Paul Graham hypothesis paper of record, you'll see this tweet. So all this stuff went vertical then because they figured out they could get clicks by, by doing this. They figured out how to game the social media system. And the New York Times then added a few more billion to its market cap. It recovered from the doldrums. As somebody said, actually, this 
you know, a colleague of mine, Aram Sebeti, racism was not a new problem, but the New York Times stock price being in the toilet was. And so they just mash that button over and over again because it generates traffic. Sometimes they actually admit to this, like, you know, a year or so ago, there's a New York mag story, like uh, inside the New York Times heated reckoning with itself, where they admit hate drives readership more than we care to admit, said somebody on the business side, okay? So they actually admit this. They've got the internal analytics where they can look. The emotion in the story drives the conversions. Actually, Matt Taibbi, your, your colleague, has also written about this with Hate Inc., right? Like there's yep. a mash yep. on those emotions. And so for basically about six, seven years, what happened Which is was, ironic because that's the accusation they cast against tech, right? Is yeah. that it depends upon hatred and anger and rage in order to sustain viewership, when in reality, that's clearly their business model. Yeah. So here's the tricky part about this, right? Basically, I think a huge part of what the Times specifically does is just massive projection. Like they are this nepotistic, you know, back scratching culture, this rapacious corporation um, that, you know, even just to the level of subscription, you can't even cancel your subscription at the Times that like calling somebody on the phone. They implement every dark pattern. They have the most like ad festoon tracker intensive website. They literally look at the words that are going to drive somebody to rage, to get them to click and subscribe. You know, they're ruthless capitalists um, to a caricatured extreme. And even their succession was basically like, you know, look, I'm not the kind of person who thinks white is an insult, but it's like three rich white male nepotist cousins, you know, uh, inherit, like like a contending for the throne from their father who inherited from his father. From his father. It's, this is like the total opposite of technology where you have like, you know, an Israeli and an Indian and a Persian, you know, starting a company together from scratch, right? You know, and no one's inheriting anything. Nobody's getting anything handed down. You're coding it from scratch, right? So they basically projected their entire worldview where there is always a thumb on the editorial scales, where there is always nepotism, where it's a ruthless corporation that's behind the scenes. And they projected that onto tech, thinking that that's what tech is like. Unfortunately, they somewhat succeeded, not somewhat, they, they largely succeeded in corrupting it because they managed to get all of these wokes to join tech. And actually here, I do put a lot of the blame on tech founders. And the reason is, you know, the full stack is not just computer software and computer hardware. It's also the biological software and biological hardware in, in the sense of the ideas in people's heads and the, you know, the position of their bodies, right? And so the moral stack we did not have, okay? We didn't have a set of moral arguments. So you could come at us under there and it's it's kind of like, you know, you have you have some guy who's a graduate of MIT or Harvard or Stanford in computer science and he can code the daylights out, but he also has this malware installed in his head on the humanity side. And even though that's latent, what the NYT did is it mashed these buttons. And so it activated them like Manchurian candidates within the tech companies. Oh, everybody's racist here. I mean, these are like some of the most globally diverse firms in the world, right? And in fact, there's this website, Tech Journalism. Much more so than intent. the people making the accusations. Exactly. That's right. Now, again, I'm not the kind of person who believes white is an insult, but they are. And they're like- No, but within that framework, they violate their own framework constantly, exactly. right? Exactly. That's right. That's right. So, so essentially now, I think what's happened is post- 2020, an important series. So for about six years, this tech clash was happening. And, and you know, Travis Kalanick, he got Uber taken away from him. It was decapitated. Like, you know, by the way, on that, like the guy who did it made tons of money on a book advance. The venture capitalist who backstabbed Travis, his name was actually elided from all of the news reports. Okay. So this was something where the, like the actually, you know, unethical VC and the unethical journal combined against the founder. That's a story that actually hasn't been told. Okay. Which is a whole separate thing. But 
essentially, you know, there are all these tech folks who were just canceled, attacked, and so on then. But the thing is, and this is actually goes back to the original point, the American regime is just much less competent and much less ruthless than the Soviets or the Nazis or the, you know, the CCP are, right? Because when the Soviets or Nazis purge somebody, they killed them, okay? There was, or jailed them. There's life, liberty, and or property was taken away. In this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, like sort of attempt to cancel and crush and and so on, because it was soft power, people lost reputation points. Uh, they certainly lost deals. They were financially harmed. I'm not going to say that it was a small thing. It was a big thing for many people. Many people, their, their careers were ruined, but many weren't. And because they weren't killed or jailed, they could eventually mount a comeback, and many of them have. And, and now they're completely outside the matrix because, you know, when you, when you go and blow up one person in, in Hollywood or one person in tech, they have 50 friends. And all of those friends have just seen this person getting denounced in the press in this completely unfair way by a group of media corporations that competed with these tech companies. And so they know it is at least partially economically motivated rather than this moral high horse. And so that led to, over time, enough people in tech realizing that, okay, we're at war here, all right? And so then in 2020, when, um, and now we get to like the third swing of the pendulum, okay? So 2020, with the early COVID reporting, did you follow this at all? Yeah, of course. Okay, so the early COVID reporting um, was something where all the tech journos in particular, that was an area of the woods that I was in, were essentially poo-pooing the whole thing and saying that, you know, people were racist for for saying, oh, the, the Chinatown parade, you might not want to hold it or uh, maybe stop flights or, you know, that you were a paranoid bubble boy. All these people either work at or, uh, or used to work at or, or will work for Salzburger, by the way. And so they, you know, th- there's this like, like this cone of contempt towards anybody who could say, hey, maybe this thing might be a problem, right? And this, Yeah, when, when Trump, that was when Trump wanted to close the border with China and Biden called him xenophobic over it. Yes, exactly. And and Pelosi was like marching around and, and so on and so forth, right? Right, which, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and basically, you know, just I remember this moment because, you know, Asics and Z, uh, you know, which I, I don't work at anymore, but, um, you know, they're, they're friends. Uh, they put a sign on their door saying, no handshakes, please. The most minor thing you could possibly imagine now from today's perspective, it's ludicrous. And there was this hit piece that was commissioned on it about how paranoid Silicon Valley's elite were, blah, blah, blah. This is February 14th, by the way. Less than a month later, California was in lockdown, okay? Right. And so this was something that was actually very impactful in technology because this was an area a lot of us understood, you know, like I actually have a PhD in genomics, a lot of people are in biotech. Biotech and tech kind of sit next to each other, right? A lot of people understood that these tech journos had essentially just proven that they didn't know what they were talking about. They had basically risked everybody's lives. They were very fortunate that it was not the Spanish flu because initially, if you look, the graph of deaths was just going like exponential like this. And then it kind of, you know, we don't know all the immunogenomics of it or what have you. Like, I think the full molecular biology of COVID, TBD, it might be that some of the vulnerable were hit first, uh, you know, TBD on that. Like Li Wenliang, for example, is 30 years old and he he died from it. Um, but the, the point being that had it actually been this catastrophic thing uh, in the sense of uh, like a Spanish flu level thing, it's only going to kill five to 10 million worldwide rather than 100 million. So it's still a catastrophe. It's not as bad as it was. Then these folks would have covered up the whole thing and then gone down choking and gurgling with everybody else. And so that kind of signaled to a lot of people that this is just a fundamentally illegitimate, incompetent set of people that we must absolutely replace because the next go around for whatever it is, 
um, it's going to be much more dangerous. And they don't know. They don't know that they don't know. They have distribution. It is a moral necessity for us to displace and replace them with something better, right? So that's, and then if you combine that with all the other tech media stuff, now I think where we've gone to in 2022 is the, the V4, which is it's decentralized tech and media versus centralized tech and media, where like, I no longer think of Google and Facebook as good guys. Uh, I mean, Facebook is like actually the least bad of all of them because it's still still run by a founder. Google and you know Amazon and so on. These are just like gigantic surveillance machines, unfortunately. And uh, conversely, you and Barry and Jesse Single and others coming over to decentralized media has kind of shuffled the deck quite a bit, right? So you have the centralized tech and media, the basically woke capital of you know the giant tech companies and the legacy media corporations who have institutional you know, like distribution and money and so on. But a lot of the creative and smart people have come over to the other side. And I actually think that we're going to win in the medium to long term. That is my current, that's my history and my current, you know, assessment. Shoot at that. You know, let, let me know if you agree with that. I was going to make a suggestion because I've hit a, a, a deadline for myself as well. And we haven't really got into the solutions bit. We've done an amazing hour and a half. Yeah. Does anyone, would you both be interested in doing a part two where we talk about the solution? Because I, I yeah, think I absolutely need about an I mean, hour for that. So much, yes. of what, so much of what Baladi just said, I have a lot to say. So much of what we've talked about already, I do, I agree completely. We haven't gotten to a couple of the key points, including like where does it go from here and how. Um, and, and rather than just trying to do it in seven minutes because we all have commitments and, and rushing it, I absolutely think it would be worth it to just schedule a second part and kind of do it in a more deliberative way. I would love to do that. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 